13. Nde these awful hevels, and children grew out of their childhood with no other vision than that of entering into the disgraceful life as early as nature would allow them. It meant little less than that practically the whole of the population was illegitimate. Viewed from a western standpoint, no such thing as marriage existed. Men and women cohabited in this horrible orgy of existence, with the result that murder, disease and pestilence were to rife among them. It was only a battle of the survival of the fittest to pursue so terrible a life. Nearly all the people were diseased by the transgression of nature's laws. After a time, however, through the instrumentality of Protestant missionaries, these wretched people began to see the light of civilization, gradually, and of their own free will. The girls gave up their accursed dens of misery and shame, and the men lived more in accord with social law and order. The Miao, too, had hitherto been dependent for their literature upon the Chinese character, which only a few could understand. Soon they had literature in their own language, a.e. and a great social reform set in. They showed a desire for Western learning such as has seldom been seen among any people in China. These were people lowest down in the social scale. And now the latest phase is the establishment of bedrothal and marriage laws, calculated to revolutionize the community and to introduce what in China is the equivalent for home life. Betrothal among the Chinese is a matter with which the parties most deeply concerned have little to do. Their parents engage a go-between or matchmaker, and another point is that there is no age limit. Not so now with the Christian Miao. No paid go-between is engaged, and brides are to be at a minimum age of 18 years and bridegrooms 20. The establishment of these laws will, it is hoped, make for the emancipation from a life of the most dreadful misery of thousands of women in one of the darkest countries of the earth. A.F. But now the Miao is pressing forward under his burdens, to guide himself in the struggle, to retrieve his falls and his failures, and in the future lies his hope the indomitable hope upon which the interest of humanity is based and he has in addition the grand expectation of escaping despair even in death. It is all the praiseworthy work of our fellow countrymen, living isolated lives among the people, building up a worthy Christian structure upon Miao simplicity and humble fidelity to the foreigner. But I digress from my travel. Little out of the ordinary marked my travels to Lao Yakwan 6.800 feet. An easy stage. My meager tiffin at an insignificant mountain village was, as usual, an educational lesson to the natives. Each tin that came from my food basket one servant delighted to lay out the whole business underwent the severest criticism tempered with a meaning eulogy, picked up and put down by perhaps a score of people, who did not mean to be rude, when I used their chopsticks dirty little pieces of bamboo in a manner very far removed from their natural method, they were proud of me, outrageously panegyric references were made when an old man, scratching at his disagreeable itch sores under my nose clipped a youngster's ear for hazarding my age to be less than that of any of the bystanders, the length of my mustache and a three-day growth on my chin giving them the opinion that I was certainly over sixty. A.G.I. entered Lao Yakwan under an inauspicious star. No accommodation was to be had. All the inns were literally overrun with sedan chairs and filled with well-dressed officials, already busy with the shilin wash basin, in my dirty coffee clothes, out at knee and elbow looking musty and mean and dusty, with my topi botched and battered, I presented a most unhappy contrast as I led my pony down the street under the sarcastic stare of my standing scrutineers, the nights were cold, and in the private house where I stayed, mercifully overlooked by a trio of protesting effigies with visages grotesque and gruesome, 
rats ran fearlessly over the room's mud floor, and at night I buried my head in my rugs to prevent total disappearance of my ears by nibbling. Not so my men, they slept a few feet from me, three on one bench, two on another. Bedding was not to be had, and so among the dirty straw they huddled together as closely as possible to preserve what bodily heat they had. Snow fell heavily. In the early morning sunlight on January 13th the undulating valley, with its grand trodden carpet of white, looked magnificently beautiful as I picked out the road shown me by a poor fellow whose ears had got frost-nipped. No easy work was it climbing tediously up the narrow footway in a sharp spur arising some 1.000 feet in a rib descent, overlooking a fearful drop. Over to the left I saw an unhappy little urchin, hardly a rag covering his shivering, bleeding body, groveling piteously in the snow, while his blind and boy-tree's mother did her best at gathering firewood with a hatchet, the pass leading over this range, through which the white crystalline flakes were driven wildly in one's face was a half-moon of smooth rock actually worn away by the endless tramping of myriads of pack ponies, who then were plodding through ruts of steps almost as high as their haunches. A man with a diseased hip joined me thoroughly farther on, dismounting from his pile of earthly belongings which these men fix on the backs of their ponies. It is a creditable trapeze act to effect a mount after the pony is ready for the journey. He had, he said, met me before. He knew that I was a missionary, and had heard me preach. He remembered my wife and myself and children passing the night in the same inn in which he stayed on one of his pilgrimages from his native town somewhere to the east of the province. I had never seen him before. I had no wife. I have never preached a sermon in my life. I should be pained ever again to have to suffer his unmannerly presence anywhere. Ponies were being loaded near my table. The rapscallion in question explained that the black blocks were assault taking a pinch from my salt cellar with his grimy fingers to add point to his remarks. I kicked at a couple of mongrels under the rude form on which I sat they fought for the skins of those potato-like pears which grow here so prolifically. The person announced that they were dogs, and that in the idiosyncrasy of Chinese dogs was to fight. Several wags joined in and all appeared, through the traveling nincompoop, to know all about my past and present, lapsing into a desultory harangue upon all men and things for him. The street reminded me of clovelly rugged and ragged and the people were wrinkled and wretched, and, indeed, being a Devonian myself by birth, I should be excused of wantonly intending to hurt the delicate feelings of the lusty sons of Devon were I to declare that I thought the life not of a very terrible dissimilarity from that port of antiquity in the West. Salt was everywhere, much more like coal than salt, certainly as black. The blocks were stacked up by the sides of inns ready for transport carried on the backs of a multitude of poor wretches who work like oxen from dawn to dusk for the merest pittance, on the backs of droves and droves of ponies, scrambling and spluttering along over the slippery once paved streets, all day long, with the exception of two or three easy ascents, we were traveling in pleasantly undulating country of park-like magnificence, my men valleyed, I tramped on alone, and sitting down to rest on the rocks, I realized that I was in one of the strangest, loneliest, Wildest corners of the world, great mountain peaks towered around me, white and sparkling diadems of wondrous beauty, and at my feet, black and stirless, lay a silent pool, reflecting the weird shadows of my coolies flitting like specters among the jagged rocks of these most solitary hills. Footnotes, footnote AD, Shaquan would be supplied by a branch line of the main railway in the Kudlung scheme advocated by Major H.R. Davies. 
leaving at miles tu, to the south of Hongwei, ejd footnote a, the written language was framed and instituted by the ref, Sam, Pollard, of the Bible Christian Mission now merged into the United Methodist Mission, ejd footnote af, the marriage laws were instituted by the China Inland Mission at Sapu Shan, where a great work is being done among the Huamiao, a good many more stipulations are embodied in the excellent rules, but I have no room here to detail. EJD footnote AG, the Chinese have the crudest ideas of the age of foreigners. Among themselves the general custom is for a man to shave his upper lip so long as his father is alive, so that in the ordinary course a man wearing a mustache is looked upon as an old man. In Tong Shuan Fu the rumor got abroad that three, Waku Ren, foreign men, went riding horses to young ones and one old one. The old one, was myself, because I had hair on my top lip. Despite the fact that I was considerably the junior, and the fact that one was a lady was not deemed worthy of the slightest consideration. EJD Chapter XBI, Lutetium Fengxian and its bridge, magnificence of mountains towards the capital, opportunity for Dublin fusiliers, characteristic climbing, crockery crash and its sequel, mountain forest, changeableness of climate, wayside scene and some reflections. Is your master drunk? Babies of the poor. Lois Roads, Travelers, and How They Should Travel, Wrangling About Payment at the Tea Shop, The Lying Art Among the Chinese, Difference of the West and East, Strange Chinese Characteristic, Eastern and Western Civilization, and How It Is Working, Remarks on the Written Character and Romanization, Will China Lose Her National Characteristics, I.H. Dying Mean, I.H. Dying Mean, A Nasty Experience of the Impotently Dumb, Rescued in the Nick of Time, when the day shall come for its history to be told, the historian will have little to say of Lutetium Fengxian, that is if he is a decent sort of fellow, he may refer to its wonderful bridge, to its beggars and its ruins, the stone bridge, one of the best of its kind in the whole empire, and I should think better than any other in Yuan man, stands today conspicuously emblematic of ill-departed prosperity, so far as I remember. It was the only public ornament in a condition of passable repair in any way creditable to the ratepayers of the Xi'an. The wall is decayed, the people are decayed, and in every nook and cranny are painful evidences of preventable decay. Marked by a conservatism among the inhabitants and unpardonable indolence, the bridge, however, has stood the test of time, and bids fair to last through eternity. Other travelers have passed over it since the days of Marco Polo. But I should like to say a word about it. Twelve yards or so wide, and no less than 150 yards long. It is built entirely of grey stone, with its massive piers, its excellent masonry, its good although crude carving, its old-time sculpturing of dreadful-looking animals at either end, its decorative triumphal arches, its masses of memorial tablets which I could not read, its seven arches of beautiful simplicity and symmetry and perfect proportion. It would have been a credit to any civilized country in the world. I noticed that, in addition to cementing, the stones and pillars forming the sides of the roadway were also dovetailed. Among the works of public interest with which successive emperors have covered China, the bridges are not the least remarkable, and in them one is able to realize the perseverance of the Chinese in the enormous difficulties of construction they have had to overcome. Passing over the stream the Xi'an Shuiho. I believe I stepped out across the plain with one foot soaked. A pony having pulled me into the water as he drank. Peas and beans covered with snow joined a heartbreaking road which led up to a long, 
winding ascent through a glade overhung by frost-covered hedgerows, where the sun came gently through and breathed the sweet coming of the spring. From midway up the mountain the view of the plain below and the fine range of hills separating me from the capital was one of exceeding loveliness. The undisturbed white of the snow and frost sparkling in the sunshine contrasting most strikingly with the darkened waves of billowy green opposite, with a background of sharp-edged mountains, whose summits were only now and again discernible in the waning morning mist. Snow lay deep in the crevices, my frozen path was treacherous for walking, but the dry, crisp air gave me a gusto and energy known only in high latitudes. In a pass cleared out from the rock we halted and gained breath for the second ascent surmounted by a dismantled watchtower, it has long since fallen into disuse, the sound tiles from the roof having been appropriated for covering other habitable dwellings nearby, where one may rest for tea, the road, paved in some places, worn from the side of the mountain in others, was suspended above narrow gorges, an entrance to a part of the country which had the aspect of northern regions, the Sunday tearing open the curtain of blue mist, Inundated with brightness one of the most beautiful landscapes it is possible to conceive. A handful of Dublin fusiliers with quick-firing rifles concealed in the hollows of the heights might have stopped a whole army struggling up the hillsides, but no one appeared to stop me. So I went on. Climbing was characteristic of the day. Lutetium Fenchian is about 5.500 feet, Esseides where we were to sleep 6.100 feet. Not much of a difference in height but during the whole distance one is either dropping much lower than Lutetium Feng or much higher than Esiaidza. For thirdly up to top Surasai 6.900 feet there is little to revel in but after that, right on to the terrific drop to our destination for the night, we were going through mountain forests than which there are none better in the whole of the province, unless it be on the extreme edge of the Tibetan border, where accompanying scenery is altogether different. From a height of 7.850 feet we dropped abruptly, through clouds of thick red dust which blinded my eyes and filled my throat, down to the city of Esiaidza. I went down behind some ponies, upwards came a fellow struggling with two loads of crockery, and in the narrow pathway he stood in an elevated position to let the animals pass. Irony of fate, one of the horses it seemed most intentional gave his load a tilt, Man and crockery all went together in one heap to a crevice thirty yards down the incline, and as I proceeded I heard the choice rhetoric of the victim and the muleteer arguing as to who should they. Just before that, I dipped into the very bosom of the earth, with rugged hills rising to bewildering heights all around, base to summit clad luxuriously in thick greenery of mountain firs, a few cedars, and the Chinese ash. Black patches of rock to the right word are the deathbed of many a swaying giant and in contrast, running away sunwards, a silver shimmer on the unmoving ocean of delicious green was caused by the slantwise sun reflections, while in the ravines on the other side a dark blue haze gave no invitation, smoothly curving fringes stood out softly against the eternal blue of the heavens, farther on, eloquent of their own strength and imperturbability, were deep rocks, black and defiant, but even here firs grew on the projecting ledges which now and again hung menacingly above the red path, shading away the sunlight and giving to the dark crevices an atmosphere of damp and cold, where men's voices echoed and re-echoed like weird greetings from the grave, onwards again, and from the cool ravines, adorned with overhand branches, forming cozy retreats from the now blazing sun day one emerged to a road leading up once more to undiscovered vastnesses, yonder narrowed a gorge, fine and delicately covered, pleasing to one's aesthetic sense, 
The center was a dome, all full of life and waving leafage, ethereal and sweet, and running down, like children to their mother, were numerous little hills densely clothed in a green lighter and more dainty than that of the parent hill, throwing graceful curtsies to the murmuring river at the foot, as I write here, bathed in the beauty of spring sunlight. It is difficult to believe that a few hours since the thermometer was at zero, little spots of habitation, with foodstuffs growing alongside, looking most lonely in their patches of green in the forest, added a human and sentimental picturesqueness to a scene so strongly impressive. A thatched, barn-like place gave us rest, the woman producing for me a huge chunk of palatable rice sponge cake sprinkled with brown sugar, little naked children, offspring of parents themselves covered with nearest hanging rags, groped round me and treated me with courteous curiosity, goats smelt round the coolie loads of men who rested on low forms and smoked their rank tobacco, smoke from the greenwood fires issued from the mud grates, where receptacles were filled with boiling water ready for the traveler, constantly refilled by a woman whose child, hung over her back, moaned piteously for the milk its mother was too busy to give to it, nearby a young girl gave suck to a deformed infant, lucky to have survived its birth, her neck was as big as her breasts nearly a case of goiter. Coolies passed, panning and puffing, all casting a curious glance at him to whose beneficence all were willing to pander. At Tiffin I counted thirty-three wretched people, who turned out to see the barbarian. They desired, and desired importunately, to touch me and the clothes which covered me, and I submitted. This halfway place was interesting owing to the fact that the lady in charge of the buffet could speak two words of French she had. I believe, acted as washerwoman to a man who at one time had been in the customs at Manx. Great excitement ensued among the perspiring laborers of the road and the dumbstruck yokels of the district. The lady was so goitrous that it would have been extremely risky to hazard a guess as to the exact spot where her face began or ended, and here, in a place where with all her neighbors she had lived through a period noted for famine, for rebellion, for wholesale death and murder of an entire village. She endured such terrible poverty that one would have thought her spirit would have waned and the light of her youth burned out. But no, the lusty dame was still sprightly. She had been three times divorced. The person at present connected with her in the bonds of wedded life also goitries and morally repulsive stood by and gazed down upon her like a proud bridegroom. He resented the levity of Shanks and his companion. But, owing to the detail of a sightless eye, he could not see all that transpired. However, we were all happy enough. Charges were not excessive. My men had a good feed of rice and cabbage, with the usual cabbage stump, to roll rice biscuits which they threw into the ashes to cook, and one cook picked the dirt off with their long fingernails, and as much tea as they could drink all for less than a penny. There is something in traveling in Yunnan, where the people away from the cities exhibit such painful apathy as to whether a dissolution of this life comes to them soon or late, which breeds drowsiness. After a tramp over mountains for five or six hours on end, one naturally needed rest. Today, as I sat after lunch and wrote out my journal, I nearly fell asleep. As I watched the reflections of all these ill-clad figures on the stony roadway, and those meanwhile, one rude fellow asked my man whether I was drunk. I was not left long to my reverie, entering into a conversation intended for the whole village to hear. My bulky coolie sublet his contract for Tutsian for the 80 Lee we had already done 50. The man hired was a weak, thin, half-baked fellow, whose body and soul seemed hardly to hang together. He was the first to arrive, 
As soon as he got in, this same man took a needle from the inside of his great straw hat and commenced ridding his pants of somewhat outrageous perforations. Such is the Chinese coolie. Although in you and man he would be an exception. Late at night he offered to put a shoe on my pony. I consented. He did the job, providing a new shoe and tools and nails, for 110 cash just about tuppence. I could not help, thinking of the children I had seen today, sad for the dirty grind babies that they were born. These children were all a family of eternal topsies they merely grew, and few knew how. They are rather dragged up than brought up, to live or die, as time might appoint. Babies in you and man, for the great majority, are not coaxed. Not tossed up and down and petted, not soothed, not humored, there are none to kiss away their tears, they never have toys, and dream no young dreams, but are brought straight into the iron realities of life, they are reared in smoke and physical and moral filth, and become men and women when they should be children, they haggle and envy, and swear and murmur, when in you and man or even in the whole of China will there be the innocence and beauty of childhood as we of the West are blessed with. Roads here were in many cases of the light lois, and some of red limestone rock, with a few leaf paved roads. Many of the main roads over the lois are altered by the rains. Two days of heavy rain will produce in some places seas of mud, often knee-deep, and this will again dry up quite as rapidly with the next sunshine. They become undermined, and crumble away from the action of even a trickling stream, so as to become always unsafe and sometimes quite impassable. Delays are very dear to the heart of every Chinese. The traveler, if he is desirous of getting his caravan to move on speedily, has little chance of success unless he assumes an attitude of profoundest indifference to all men and things around him never appear to be in a hurry. We are accompanied today to Kwantun Xian by the coolie who carried the load yesterday. He sits by staring enviously at his compatriots in the employ of the foreign magnate, who rests on a stone behind and listens to the conversation. They invite him to carry again, he refuses. Now the argument natural and right and proper is ensuing with warmth. Lao Chang, with the air of a Xian, Guan, sits in judgment upon them, bringing to bear his long experience of coolies and the amount of hard money they receive, and has decided that the fellow should receive a tenth of a dollar and twenty cash in addition for carrying the heavier of the loads the remaining thoroughly, as against ten cents offered by the men. He is now extending philosophic advice to them all. Based on a knowledge of the coolie's life, the little meeting breaks up. Good feeling prevails, and the loads carried on merrily. I still linger, sipping my tea. Lao Chang has grumbled because he has had to shell out seven cash, and I have already drunk ten cups. He generally uses the tea leaves afterwards for his personal use. But wrangling about payment prevails always where Chinese congregate. In China, by high and low. Lies are told without the slightest apparent compunction. One of the men in the above-mentioned dispute had an irrepressible volubility of assertion. He at once flew into a temper, adopting the style of the stage actor, proclaiming his virtue so that it might have been heard at Yuan Manfu. He was preserving his face, for in this country temper is often, what it is not in the West, a test of truth. Among Westerners nothing is more insulting sometimes than a philosophic temper, but in China you must. As a first law unto yourself, protect yourself at all costs and against all comers, and it generally requires a good deal of noise. Here the bully is not the coward. In respect of prevarication, it seems to be absolutely universal, the poor copy the vice from the rich. It seems to be in the very nature of the people, and although it is hard to write, 
My experience convinces me that my statement is not exaggeration. I have found the Chinese I speak of the common people, for in my travels I have not mixed much with the rich the greatest romancer on earth. I question whether the great preponderance of the Chinese people speak six consecutive sentences without misrepresentation or exaggeration, tantamount to prevarication, regretting that I have to write it. I give it as my opinion that the Chinese is a liar by nature, and when he is confronted with the charge of lying, the culprit seems seldom to feel any sense of guilt, and yet in business above the petty bargaining business we have as the antithesis that the spoken word is his bond. I would rather trust the Chinese merely on his word than the Jap with a signed contract. The Chinese knows that the Englishman is not a liar, and he respects him for it, and it is to be hoped that in you and man there will soon be seen the two streams of civilization which now flow in comparative harmony in other more enlightened provinces flowing here also in a single channel. These two streams of the East and the West represent ideas in social structure, in government, in standards of morality in religion and in almost every human conception as diverse as the peoples are racially apart, they cannot, it is evident, live together, the one is bound to drive out the other, or there must be such a modification of both as will allow them to live together, and be linked in sympathies which go farther than exploiting the country for initial greed, the Chinese will never lose all the traces of their inherited customs of daily life, of habits of thought and language products which have been borne down the ages since a time contemporary with that of Solomon. No fair-minded man would wish it, and it is at once impossible. The language, for instance, who is there, who knows anything about it, who would wish to see the Chinese character drop out of the national life, yet it is bound to come to some extent, and in future ages the written language will develop into pretty well the same as Latin among ourselves. Romanization, although as yet far from being accomplished, must sooner or later come into vogue, as is patent at the first glance at business. If commerce in the interior is to grow to any great extent in succeeding generations, warranting direct correspondence with the ports at the coast and with the outside world, the Chinese hieroglyph will not continue to suffice as a satisfactory means of communication. No correspondence in Chinese will ever be written on a machine such as I am now using to type this manuscript and this valuable adjunct of the office must surely force its way into Chinese commercial life, but only when Romanization becomes more or less universal. This, however, by the way, my point island that no matter how occidentalized he may become, the Chinese will never lose his national characteristics not so much probably as the Japanese has done, what the youth has been at home, in his habits of thought, in his purpose and spirit, in his manifestation of action will largely determine his afterlife. Chinese mental and moral history has so stamped certain ineffaceable marks on the language, and the thought and character of her people, that China will never even were she so inclined obliterate her oriental features, and must always and inevitably remain Chinese. The conflict, however, is not racial. It is a question of civilization. Were it racial only, to my way of thinking we should be beaten hopelessly. And as I write this in a Chinese inn, in the heart of Yuan Man the backward province, surrounded by the common people in their common, dirty, daily doings, a far stretch of vivid imagining is needed to see these people in any way approaching the westernization already current in eastern provinces of this dark empire. This is what I wrote sitting on the top of a mountain during my tour across China. 
but it will be seen in other parts of this book that Western ideas and methods of progress in accord more with European standards are being adopted and in some places with considerable energy even in the backward province. In travel anywhere in the world, one becomes absorbed more or less with one's own immediate surroundings, and there is a tendency to form opinions on the limitations of those surroundings. In many countries this would not lead one far astray, but in China it is different. Most of my opinion of the real Chinese is formed in Yunnan, and it is not to be denied that in all the other 17 provinces, although a good many of them may be more forward in the trend of national evolution and progress, the same squalidness among the people, and every condition antagonistic to the Westerners' education so often referred to, are to be found, but China has 430 millions of people, so that what one writes of one particular province in the main right, perhaps may not necessarily hold good in another province, separated by thousands of miles, where climatic conditions have been responsible for differences in general life, with its great area and its great population, it does not need the mind of a Spencer to see that it will take generations before every acre and every man will be gathered into the stream of national progress. The European traveler in China cannot perhaps deny himself the pleasure of dwelling upon the absurdities and oddities of the life as they strike him. But there is also another side to the question. Our own civilization, presenting so many features so extremely removed from his own ancient ideas and preconceived notion of things in general, probably looks quite as ridiculous from the standpoint of the Chinese. The East and the West each have lessons to offer the other. The West is offering them to the East and they are being absorbed, and perhaps were we to learn the lessons to which we now close our eyes and ears, but which are being put before us in the characteristics of Oriental civilization, we may in years to come, sooner than we expect, rejoice to think that we have something in return for what we have given, it may save us a rude awakening, it does not strike the average European, who has never been to China, and who knows no more about the country than the telegrams which filter through when massacres of our own compatriots occur, that Europe and America are not the only territories on this little round ball where the inhabitants have been left with a glorious heritage. But I was speaking of my men delaying on the road to Kwantung Xian, when they laughed at my impatience. I.H. Dying Mean, I.H. Dying Mean, shouted one, as he held out a huge blue bowl of white worm-like strings and a couple of chopsticks. Mean it should be said, is something like vermicelli, a tremendous amount of it is eaten, and in Singapore, without exception, it is dried over the city's drains, hung from pole to pole after the roadmaker's fashion, its slipperiness renders the long boneless strings most difficult of efficient adjustment, and the recollection of the entertainment my comrades received as I struggled to get a decent mouthful sticks to me still,